This morning, our passage comes from Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 to 7, and verses 17 to 21. And we have the privilege of having Pastor Bill preach God's word for us. Then the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, incompetent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. As for these four youth, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. We're continuing our Sunday morning teaching series today in the book of Daniel. It's a study where we're asking the question, what does it look like for us as people of faith to live among people who don't necessarily share our faith? And I want to start this morning with a funny story, at least what I thought was funny. I woke up Friday morning with a dream, a dream that showed where my mind and my heart were. And I think that's what most dreams do, right? I mean, not the super bizarre ones, but most dreams show you what you really believe or what you really like inside when all of your defenses are down. And this was one of those kind of dreams. I was supposed to be officiating at a wedding service, but I was having trouble getting ready. It's a really elaborate, ornate, ceremonial kind of service. And I was having to wear all these crazy kind of clothes that, you know, you'd expect if you saw like a bishop or one of the Old Testament priests, all those kind of garments. And I could not get these things on. And I'm working as hard as I can to put on this really fancy robe. It has sashes. It has this hood kind of thing. It's all bunching up. I've got these fancy slipper boot things that have laces in them, but the laces aren't in them. So I'm sitting there on the floor trying to get this thread, really fat thread through these little, little tiny holes. The service is starting. And I'm saying, it's okay. I'll be right there. Just keep going. I've got this other robe. I'm supposed to put that on. It's all bulky and clumsy. And I start out for the service. I look really disheveled. I, I haven't been able to lace up the shoes, but I figure it, they're underneath the robe. It won't matter. And I think it just doesn't matter. Just get there. And then I woke up. You think, okay, Bill, that's really weird. Actually, it was perfect. But to understand this dream, you have to understand that Friday is when I was planning to start working on writing the sermon. I'd done all of my study earlier in the week took pages and pages of notes, read a bunch of different commentaries, did some online research, some other outside reading, pulled together an outline. But like the last several messages, I'm struggling. There is so much here that I could say. There's so much here that I want to say, so much that I think is really important to say. 
important for us as Renewal Main Line as a church, but also for us as individuals who live in the Philadelphia suburbs. And so I'm struggling because I feel the weight of this moment. I feel the pressure of having too much to say. And so it feels like I'm clumsily just stuffing everything together, at which point you can start to hear the overtones of the dream. I'm leaving bunches of it undone because why? The service is starting right now, this morning, and I just have to get there. Now for all of you college students, sorry to let you down, but test anxiety dreams, they don't stop just because you're out of school. They just morph into something different. Why am I having all these kind of thoughts? The book of Daniel is extremely important to me. A little bit of background for those of you who don't know me well. My graduate work is in sociology, which is the most atheistic discipline that there is. The starting point in sociology is that everything that human beings do and think about, everything is a product of their own invention. Everything is socially constructed, including God. The starting point is that there is no God, but that we create him in order to serve certain personal and societal functions. I immersed myself in this world immediately after going to seminary. The great experience, I would do it again. But the clash of worldviews was obvious. It was very sharp, very clear, very antagonistic. The people were not antagonistic, but the worldview and the philosophies really were. I ended up reading the book of Daniel a number of times during my studies there. Daniel and his friends spent three years studying the literature and the language of the Babylonians. They were what? They were grad students. They were dropped into an alien culture that they had to master, one that was antagonistic to their faith, one that set out to replace their faith with its own. And Daniel and his friends not only survived that experience, they thrived there. I needed that reminder, that's why I kept going back to the book. I needed the reminder that it is possible to be in this world, but not of it. That it's possible to keep your faith and live it out, even in a setting that dismisses it. And not only is it possible to keep it, I needed to know that your faith in Jesus Christ can hold its own in this world. That it's possible to engage the larger world in a way that shows the flaws of what it believes but that then offers a better way. And I needed to know that it is possible when this world is antagonistic that you don't have to be antagonistic in return. That you don't have to be squeezed into the pattern of this world that teaches you to love your friends and hate your enemies. But that your faith can turn you into someone who loves everyone, who loves all the people around you who doesn't simply put up with them, doesn't tolerate them, but someone who offers them something better than they have yet wanted for themselves because you've been offered something better than you ever wanted for yourself. I wanted that reminder for myself. I wanted it for my family. We we're just starting to have kids at that point in time, and I thought, by God's grace, I want my kids to learn how to play at the highest level that they possibly can in this world, a world that rejects God. And I want my kids to have the chance of holding on to their faith in him if he gives them the gift of believing in him, if he calls them to himself. I wanted them, if God called them to know him, to be lights in this world that showed him to the world around them. Or at least I wanted to put that in front of them and say, this is your calling. This is what God gives you. So the book of Daniel is very important to me personally. It's important for the Smith family as we've parented children who have had to grow up and live in this society. And so I have lots to say from this book. Having been at Renewal now for over a year and a half, 
having to gotten to know us a little bit better, I think there are a lot of things in this book that are very important for us as a community. Things that I just will not be able to stuff in to this morning. So I want to make an offer. We don't have Zoom fellowship today, but I will stick around in the Zoom room immediately following the service for anyone who wants to talk more about Daniel, who wants to wrestle with the sermon, who wants to think about how it applies to their life. I'm not going to preach another sermon. I do not have anything prepared for that time. But if you have questions or if you have things that have been rattling around in your mind for the last couple of weeks, things that you want to wrestle with, I'll be happy to stick around, be kind of like we would do on a normal Sunday if we were all in person anyway. And if a group setting is not your thing or if the kids are you know, really ready to be done at that point, but you'd still like to have those conversations, reach out. Go to the website, go to the uh, contact link at renewalmainline.org, reach out, and we'll set something up in the next couple of weeks. Okay, now that I've shrunk my limited time now even more, back to Daniel. About 600 years before Christ was born, the Babylonian Empire invaded the nation of Israel. They conquered it, and they stole not only its material treasures, they also took captive a number of its people. Now, Babylon was not a nation that simply held different sets of beliefs from Israel. They didn't simply have different values and lifestyles that sprang from a different worldview. It was a nation that was very intentional in promoting its worldview. And so after conquering Jerusalem, the Babylonian commander brought back young Israelites from the royal and the noble families, future leaders, and he brought them to the capital city of Babylon to put them through an intense training and indoctrination program. The purpose of that program was to take Israelites and turn them into good Babylonians, people who would then serve the Babylonian empire, making it even greater and more powerful than it already was, and who would essentially be missionaries for it, people who would spread Babylonian beliefs and practices to even more people. And among those chosen for this education, or maybe to say it better, this re-education program, were four young men. The word there for young men really means basically teenagers. These were four young men who went through the program and they aced it. They took their oral comprehensives before the king, verse 19, and they stood out in their class so that none was found like them. And yet these four men never forgot their real identity. And they lived out their faith in such a public way that they were known for it. We're going to see that as we keep reading through the book in the next several chapters. They stood out. They stood out as citizens of Babylon. They stood out as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And everybody around them knew both of those things about them. The chapter closes with verse 21. It's easy to miss the importance of this if you're not up on your history of ancient Near Eastern kings. We're told that after his Babylonian studies and examination, Daniel ended up as a high-ranking official in Babylon until the first year of King Cyrus. What's that telling you? It tells you that Daniel served there in Babylon until 539 B.C., now let's do the math. He was exiled to Babylon in 605 BC. He served there until 539 BC, from 605 to 539. That's a span of 66 years. Daniel spent his entire adult life serving a number of different Babylonian and Persian kings. He served the nation that raised 
Jerusalem to the ground, that deported nearly all of its people for 70 years. That's the nation that Daniel and his friends spent their lives serving, the nation that they gave their best to. But it's also the nation that they introduced to the power and the wisdom of the one true God. They did become missionaries, but not missionaries for Babylon. They became missionaries to Babylon. And they were missionaries there because God sent them there. Verse two of chapter one tells us that when Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, that God gave it into his hand. Behind all the power that Babylon had was the power of God. Behind all their agendas was the agenda of God. Daniel and his friends were in Babylon, ultimately not because Babylon loved them and had a wonderful plan for their lives, but because God did. And that plan involved letting Babylonians taste what it's like to be around people who know God, around people who are in a relationship with God. And that's the same thing that God does with all of his people. You see this very quickly in the life of the early church. You go to the book of Acts, chapter 8, and God's people are driven out of Jerusalem by persecution, our brothers and sisters of the early church. We read in chapter 8, verse 2, that all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, scattered around the surrounding countries. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem, but the lay people, the ordinary people, were scattered. And you think, well, what, what happened to them? What did they do? Skipping down to verse 4, those who had been scattered, the lay people, preached the word wherever they went. They were missionaries. The lay people were missionaries. This is what God does. He takes regular people who love and trust him and he scatters them so that other people have a chance to get to know him. And that wasn't simply true for Daniel and his friends, not simply true for the early church. It's true for all of those of us who come later as well. And so Peter, when he writes his first letter, addresses it this way. He says, to God's elect, exiles, people who are not in their homeland, not in heaven, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's who we are. We are God's people where? In exile, not home yet, scattered throughout the provinces, throughout the world. God sprinkles us throughout the world for the sake of the world, just like he sprinkled Daniel and his friends and gave them to Babylon. And so as we read the book of Daniel, what is it? It's an instruction manual on how to go about being scattered among the nations with God's purposes in mind. It's our textbook on how to do this. It's to help you realize that you're not here. You are not in the Philadelphia suburbs for the sake of the American dream. It's not why you're here. That's way too small a goal. You are here to participate in the dream of the kingdom of God. The dream that people from every tribe, language, and nation, people from every career, every occupation, every profession, people from every community, township, and neighborhood, those people will have the opportunity to see and experience something of who God is because they see and experience God's people firsthand in a way that makes sense to them. They hear from people who speak their language in their socioeconomic bracket. You are those people. 
God has scattered you in places because he has people in those places that he wants to reach through you. And so you need to get up and go to class. You need to go to work. You need to go to your neighbors. You need to visit your families. You need to go to the store with his purposes in mind. That's your calling. Now, if we're going to be effective in that calling, effective on our mission fields, we need to answer three questions this morning. Three questions that Daniel and his friends help us with. First, what do we need to know? Second, what do we need to bring? And third, what do we need to believe? What do we need to know? What do we need to bring? And what do we need to believe? First, what do we need to know? The Hebrew young men brought many things to the table that made them desirable as future leaders. Things that made them candidates to rub shoulders with the Babylonian elites. Verse 4, they were without blemish of good appearance. They looked good. They were skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning. They were intellectually gifted. And they were competent to stand in the king's palace. They knew how to conduct themselves around other highly successful, powerful people. They had a lot of raw material to work with, material that allowed them to get their foot in the door. But they were missing something crucial. They didn't know the people that they are now supposed to live and work with. They didn't understand the people. They didn't understand what shaped and formed them. They didn't understand what the Babylonians valued. They didn't understand what they paid attention to, what informed their decision-making process. They didn't understand how business got done, how the empire was run. They didn't know all those things. And so verse four, the chief eunuch was to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. They were to study literature and language. We'll take them one at a time. They were to learn the literature of the Babylonians, the myths and stories of the culture, the stories that communicated things like what Babylonians did and did not value, what they did and didn't want in life, what they held in highest regard, what they held in lowest regard, what counted as success, what was failure, what the pathways to that were acceptable to success and what you want to do to avoid failure the definitions of right and wrong, the origin of what was wrong in the world and what had to be done in order to put it right. In other words, in studying the literature, they're studying the culture of Babylon, the worldview of this alien civilization. Not simply the gods and goddesses, but how those gods and goddesses translated to what the society as a whole worshipped, what the society wanted, what they were willing to pursue regardless of what it cost them. And the Hebrew young men needed to understand that world around them if they were going to serve there like God wanted them to. So you have to keep in mind here that it's God's agenda behind Babylon's agenda. And so you read this and you realize God put them there to learn about the Babylonians at Babylonian expense. They needed to understand the world around them. They need to understand literature. They also need to understand language. Now, that's obvious they needed to communicate. Here's something that is not as obvious. And it's that language also was to shape the young men culturally. See, the words that are available to you in a society are not neutral. Instead, cultural values are embedded in the words that anyone uses in their language. That's why so much is being made of words and language right now in our country. 
You hear that cultural embedding when someone claims that it's hate speech to use a gendered pronoun when they want you to use something else for them. Well, what are they doing when they make that claim? They're recognizing that culture and cultural values are expressed in a society's language. They're recognizing words have to do that. Words can't help but do that. That the words you use and the words that are available to you to use allow you to express this culture and not that one. That's what Daniel and his friends were dumped into, verse 5, for three years. It's a full immersion program. After which there was this intense exam that was given by someone who had the power to decide if they lived or died. Remember the chief eunuch's concern last week? We saw that in verse 10. He was afraid that if Daniel's appearance was just a bit off from what the king was expecting, then the chief eunuch would lose his head. That's the power that the king had. And that's the guy who's going to be asking questions at the examination. I think if that was my situation, that probably would have motivated me a little bit to make sure I was really studying hard. These young guys did study. At their final exam, verse 19, when the king spoke with them, he found none, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. In the space of three years, these four young men became experts in Babylon, in Babylonian culture, and in their ability to communicate with other Babylonians. They were grad students. And their expertise qualified them then to serve before the king in his palace. They understood Babylon better than everyone else in their program. If you're going to serve the people around you, you need to understand them just that well. You need to study your culture. You need to understand it. You need to be able to talk about it. And you need to understand more than facts and figures, more than names and dates and places, more than who did what and why they did so. You need to understand the reasons why certain facts, figures, names, dates, and places are important and why other facts, figures, etc. are not important. There's an underlying reason there in the culture for that that draws attention to one and does not draw attention to the other. You need to understand the cultural myths that we tell each other in this country, the values that we hold most dear, the values that we despise, the beliefs that we hold, the underlying things that we worship, the things that we hold up as most important. If you don't understand those things, you will never understand the people around you. And if you don't understand the people around you, you won't understand why they do what they do. And if you don't understand why they do what they do, you won't understand what it is that they really need. You'll be ineffective in helping them. There's something even more sinister here, though. If you are unaware of what your culture's idolatries are, if you don't know the values and the goals that underlie the stories that we tell each other, you won't understand where those cultural idolatries live inside of you. You won't understand how they live inside of you. You won't understand how they influence you. You'll end up living according to them unwittingly, compromising with them. And so you won't be a missionary to Babylon. You'll be a missionary from Babylon. I'm using the word missionary here very intentionally. See, if you go overseas to another culture to help people see and experience who God is, you would study that culture. It would be obvious to you that you didn't know it and that you needed to know it in order to communicate it 
communicate to it in ways that it understood. But we fall into a different mindset when we grow up in a culture. We think we know it. We think that we don't need to work to understand it, but all that means is that we feel comfortable with it. All that means is that it has found a home in our own hearts. Now, if you're looking for a place to start here in understanding the culture in the U.S., really good, easy read is Tim Keller's Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and The Only Hope That Matters. If you've already read that, feel free to reach out. Happy to recommend other reading things as well, other ways to study. If you're going to live out the dream of the kingdom of God, then first, you need to know and understand the world around you. That's point one. Second, if you're going to serve the people around you like God is calling you to, you're going to need to bring more to them than you can find in the surrounding culture. When the young men stood before King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 19, the king could not find anyone in their class like them, but they were actually even better than just being at the top of their class. Verse 20, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Did you catch that? They weren't just better than the ones that they studied with. They were better 10x better, 10 times better than all those in all his kingdom. Now think about what that means. They learned the secrets of the magicians and the enchanters. They studied them for three years. And yet they ended up better than the magicians and enchanters, and not by a little bit. How did that happen? It's because they had something more than mere Babylonian learning. Verse 17, God gave these four young men learning and skill in two things. In literature, which we've already looked at, and in wisdom. That's a really important distinction there. The author is not equating those two things. It's not just finding two different ways to say the same thing. He's comparing two things that are radically different. God gave them the ability to learn the literature that came from Babylon, but he also gave them the ability to learn wisdom the ability to evaluate what they were learning, to sort out what was true and what was false. The book of Daniel is very careful. It never overtly criticizes Babylonian learning, but it also never leans on that learning to sort out the problems that the Babylonians or that the Hebrews are having. And that's because Babylonian learning just never is really up to the problem at hand. The Hebrews instead have to do what? They have to rely on their faith. They have to rely on wisdom instead. And that always gives a better outcome for them and for the people around them than what was happening previously. In other words, if you're going to be educated by your society, you have to take seriously that they are teaching you a way of approaching this world. And if that approach does not teach you the first two great commandments above all other things, that you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you must love your neighbor as yourself. If those two things do not underlie what they are teaching you, you have to take seriously that you're not getting the wisdom that you need. You're not getting the wisdom that you need in order to succeed in God's eyes in his kingdom. You're not getting the wisdom that you need to help this world with what it needs. And so these four young men, 
barely out of their teens at this point. High school students, middle schoolers, looking at you here. These four young men, barely out of their teens at this point, demonstrate the truth that you find in Psalm 119. Verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, which means I understand more than the elders, for I keep your precepts. That's what wisdom offers you. You can be wiser than your enemies. You can have more understanding than your teachers, more understanding than people who have a lot more life experience than you do. That's what these young men experienced. That's what they brought into the king's palace. It was, verse 20, wisdom and understanding that no one in all of the kingdom could match. Wisdom and understanding that Babylon with all its culture did not have and could not give. But wisdom and understanding that it desperately needed. That means, I've said this now for a couple decades, that means that Christian students have to study more and they have to study harder than their non-Christian counterparts. Let me say that again. Christian students have to study more and they have to study harder than their non-Christian counterparts. You not only have to learn the literature and the language that you're being taught, but you also have to learn the wisdom of God to understand the limitations of the literature and the language that you're being taught. You have to see the world from God's perspective or you'll have nothing to offer to this world. You'll only have to offer it what it's offered you, what is on the inside of you now reshaping you. And if you're tempted to say, oh, well, you know what, I, I don't need to do that. I'm studying to be an engineer, a scientist, a business person, a medical specialist. We don't study literature. We, we study facts. If that's what you're thinking, you need to go back to last week where we talked about how all of Western science is built upon an atheistic, naturalistic philosophy. And it philosophy that has formed and influences the way that you think about and approach the world so that you don't expect God to intervene here. And you don't expect him to intervene in your own world. You have to see this world from God's perspective in all of your studies and in all of the academic disciplines. If you don't that, you'll have nothing to offer the people living here. Now, obviously, college students, I'm talking to you. High school students, talking to you. Grad students, really talking to you. And if you're out of school and you didn't do this, you didn't study God's wisdom as much as you studied your professional discipline, you need to go back. You need to think through what you learned from God's point of view. Because if you don't, you'll simply have let them turn you into a Babylonian. Now, I understand that I'm stepping on toes here. I'm trying to do this very gently. But I'm doing it. And I'm doing it because what's at stake is huge. What's at stake is your ability to serve the Lord where he's put you. And I want you to be able to do that to the best of your ability. And that means you need to study your society. You need to learn its culture. But you also have to study what God thinks about your society's culture. You have to do both of those at the same time. So, for example, 
It's not enough to think about a social movement in the society and say, oh, that's, that's Marxist. Instead, you have to understand what is appealing to people about a Marxist worldview. You have to take that next step. What is appealing to them about that? Why do they think that that's a good thing? But you also have to ask, how does God think about this? What's his take on it? You have to do that two-step across the board as you live in this world. You have to understand why people embrace something in their society, and you have to understand what God has to say about what they're embracing. Take another illustration. It's not enough to say that the moral revolution is wrong. You have to go further than that, and you have to understand what is it that's appealing to people about a progressive sexual ethic. What's appealing about homosexuality? transgenderism, a rejection of the sexual binary. You have to understand why people would embrace those views. What is it that appeals to them? And you have to see how God thinks about those things and thinks about people who do find those things appealing. Or again, it's not enough to hear someone say that something is unjust and you just simply nod your head along with them. First, you have to understand what definition of injustice is being used here. Is it about the loss of freedom, the loss of fairness, the loss of happiness, loss of power? You have to understand what form of injustice someone is seeing at that time, and then you have to understand why that form is important to them. And then you have to go that next step, and you have to ask, what does God think about that particular claim of injustice? Is biblical justice the same as what they're seeing, or is biblical justice less, or is biblical justice more? You have to ask. How does God's concern for justice line up with this thing that someone else is concerned about? Feel overwhelmed yet? I do most of the time. There are days when I feel like I'm so far behind, I'm just never going to catch up. And then I start to realize that our society is constantly changing underneath of us, and I'm tempted just to give up. Thankfully, God does not. He does not give up, He does not change. His word has not changed. It still is the source of everything that we need in order to understand our world and to understand what it needs. It still gives more wisdom than this world can. And so on a regular basis, I need to slow myself down. I need to watch one less show. I need to play one less video game. I need to go back to what I practiced in grad school. I need to go back to taking a minute after class, after doing my readings, and just ask three very basic questions. Number one, what am I learning here that my world wants me to think or to do? What do they want me to think or do? Second, what philosophy or beliefs are underneath of what they want me to think or do? What supports what they want me to think or do? And then third, what does God have to say about that belief? So it's going back to scripture. What does my world want me to think or do? What are the philosophical beliefs that support what my world wants me to think or do? And then what does God think about that? Now, most of the time, guess what? It took time. It still takes time, a lot of time. The answers don't come real quickly, at least they don't for me. It still takes a lot of time. This is something that you do slowly, but you do it consistently. And so after you read a news article, you take just a few moments to think through it. 
You watch a movie, you see commercials during the Super Bowl, you listen to a song, and you ask these three questions. And if you will do this consistently, not always getting answers very quickly, but if you'll do it consistently, you'll start to see patterns in what you're studying, patterns in what you're reading, patterns in what you're watching, what you're listening to, and then something amazing will happen. You'll start to hear those same things from the people who are talking to you, the people that you live around. And then you'll start to get a sense of what it is that they really need to hear. You'll have a sense of what the questions are that you need to be asking. Get a sense of what God might want them to hear. Now, obviously more that I could say on this. I'm way out of time. If you're interested, pop into the Zoom room afterward and let's continue the discussion. So first, you have to know and understand the world around you. Second, you have to bring more to them than you can find in the surrounding culture. Third, I'm going to be very quick here, you have to believe. You have to believe that not only has God given you to the people around you, you have to believe that he's equipped you to do the job that he's given to you. See, I can imagine someone saying right now, there is no way. (laughs) Bill, that's crazy. There's no way I could do that. There's no way that I could do what those guys did. I couldn't do that when I was in school. I can't do that now. I'm not a Daniel. That's probably true. I'm certainly not a Daniel. But neither were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It's part of what I love about this book. It does have a main character, but it's not just about him. It does not perpetuate the American hero mythology, which by the way, is something that you need to know and understand if you're going to serve the people around you. In America, we like heroes. And so we expect that God does too. But then you read through scripture and you realize most of the time he just uses ordinary people like these other guys who were also 10 times better than everyone else. Why? Verse 17. They had wisdom, yes, but they don't credit themselves with getting it. They don't credit their intelligence. They don't credit their own efforts at study. Instead, they knew that it was something God gave them. That he gave them learning and skill in all literature, but not just in all literature. He gave them learning and skill in all wisdom. That underneath all their learning and skill effort, it was something that God gives. And God does that because he equips his people so they can do the job that he gives them. He equips all of them not just the spiritual rock stars. And so you can count on him equipping you as well. That hasn't changed. The nations change. They devour each other. The underlying philosophies and idolatries of the nations change. It's hard to even keep up. God does not change. His plans don't change. His resources don't change. His commitment to giving you those resources doesn't change. He still equips his people to meet the need of this world that he puts you in. And he does that because as much as you may like the people around you, as much as you may care about them, as much as you may even love them, you're not close to as passionate and as concerned about them as he is. The real missionary in this story is not Daniel. It's not his friends. The real missionary, the one with the greatest missionary heart, is God. It's always been God. It was God who left heaven when Adam and Eve rejected him. He immediately descended into the ungodly world that they created because he was not content to leave them stuck in the mess they made for themselves. It was God who again came to earth over and over, repeatedly reaching out to people to rescue them, 
came to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, David, to the Israelites. Each time that his people turned from him, he turned to them. Each time he put in far more effort to reach them than they ever did to respond to him. He spoke to them in their language, spoke to them with words that they could understand. He didn't insist that they learn his language. He didn't expect them to understand him from within his world, from the culture that he built in heaven. Instead, he took familiar things from their world and used those things to let people know what he's like. He took all the responsibility on himself to cross the chasm between his culture and theirs so that they could have a sense of his heart, of his longing, of his desire for them. And then came Jesus, God's ultimate commitment to knowing people and his ultimate commitment to making himself known. He crossed the culture chasm by becoming one of us learning from the inside what it's like to be us, learning to take things from our world, fishing, farming, vineyards, buried treasure, birds, flowers, fields ready to be harvested. He took things that we could understand in order to teach us about the God that we did not know, to help us see what God thought. Throughout Jesus' life, his mission trip to this earth, he went to villages, towns, cities, eventually to a palace where he stood before Pilate, where he faced a final exam, where he told Pilate things that could not be learned here, anywhere on earth, that he was a great king, that he was the king of a kingdom that is not of this world. He answered questions in a palace. He went to the top of his class. None was found like him. And instead of living there in that palace, he was sentenced there to die. Not for his own failure to understand us, to bring God's perspective to us, but for our failures. For our failure to love this world enough to know it. For our failure to love God enough to know what he thinks of this world. Jesus died for our failures, but God raised him from the dead. Jesus did not fail God's exam. He passed that one with flying colors, and in doing so, he won the right to pour out his Holy Spirit on his people, to equip them. He won the right to give you the Spirit that he promised in John chapter 14, the Spirit who will teach you all things, you're not in this on your own, who will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you, so that when, Luke 12, you're faced with people who challenge you in this world and challenge your beliefs, Jesus said, you don't need to be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. God gives you what you need so that he can, you can do the job he's given you to do. And when you doubt that, he covers that failure as well. And the Spirit that he's given you reminds you, God's never going to give you more than you can handle. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And then the Spirit says to you, come on, get up. There's lots yet to do. But you're not going to do it alone. Let's do it together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for coming to this earth. Lord, thank you for communicating to us who the Father is. Forgive us for the many times where we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves, not wanted to know our neighbor, not been 
concerned about them. Lord, where we've not loved you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and so we've thought that our neighbor was just fine because we didn't see how desperately you wanted to reach them and how much trouble they were in. Lord, thank you that you have not given up on us. Thank you that you continue to empower us. Lord God, give us a sense of that now as you send us out into this world. In Jesus' name, amen.